0: Welcome to the IAB Policy Podcast, where we provide expert commentary and analysis on the legal and regulatory developments impacting the digital advertising industry. My name is Alex Propes and I'm the Vice President of Public Policy for the IAB, based in Washington, D.C. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Paul Breitbarth, who is the Director of EU Policy and Strategy at TrustArc, based in their Netherlands office. Paul is also the Senior Visiting Fellow and member of the Board of Maastricht University's European Center on Privacy and Cybersecurity. Before joining TrustArc via its acquisition of Nimity, Paul served as Senior International Officer at the Dutch Data Protection Authority. There, he was an active member of various Article 29 Working Party subgroups, which was an independent European body that played an important role in shaping EU privacy rules before GDPR was enacted. In this role, he also co-authored opinions on data protection reform, national security, surveillance, and privacy shield, among other topics. During our discussion, Paul and I will discuss a very timely subject, the recent decision by the European Court of Justice that invalidated the EU-US privacy shield framework. As background, the EU's privacy law, the General Data Protection Regulation, places restrictions on companies that wish to transfer personal data beyond the borders of the EU. To overcome this hurdle, the Privacy Shield framework was negotiated between the European Commission and the US government as a solution for companies to comply with this requirement of the GDPR. The framework had thousands of participants, including nearly 100 IAB member companies. On this episode, Paul will provide more detail on why the European court invalidated Privacy Shield and what practical steps those in the advertising industry should take as they consider alternative options. I'll also provide my thoughts on what the next iteration of the Privacy Shield framework could look like in light of the current political environment. I hope you enjoy. Paul, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: So on July 16th, just several weeks ago, the European Court of Justice ruled as part of its Schrems II decision that the EU-US Privacy Shield framework was invalid. That decision leaves many companies uh, wondering what to do next. Around Mm 5,000 companies are still participated in the framework, including many IAB member companies. Uh, And they're now questioning what options are available to them going forward as they try to do business in Europe. For those that follow the SHREMS1 decision and the invalidation of the EU-US safe harbor framework, this likely feels like Groundhog Day. Uh, But I'm looking forward to delving (laughs) into these issues and tapping into your expertise on EU privacy in more detail. But to start off the discussion, can you share a little bit more about what TrustArk does?
1: Absolutely. So TrustArk is a U.S.-based software company, and we help companies around the globe with their data protection and privacy compliance. Um, So we have a platform where companies can um, document everything that they need to do from cookie consent to their Article 30 records of processing under GDPR, um, do risk assessments including on data transfers. Um, And we also have through the acquisition of Nimity that you already mentioned, uh, a whole library of legal resources, uh, templates to help develop a privacy program but also daily updates on everything that is happening in the privacy community, including everything on Schrems 2
0: Okay, great. So I suspect that many of our listeners have read the headlines around this case, but may not have delved into the details itself and the decision itself. Could you share a summary of the Schrems 2 decision and any other background that you would think be, would be helpful?
1: Absolutely. I won't start at the very beginning, but um, it does go back to the Schrems one decision because this, is, this, this case is building on the initial decision that invalidated Safe Harbor. Um, When that happened on the 6th of October 2015, um, the Safe Harbor disappeared. Um, And basically, the Irish DPA um, was forced to start uh, enforcing that decision by the court. In the original complaint from Mr. Schrems uh, to Facebook, he objected against the fact that Facebook transferred his personal data from Facebook Ireland to Facebook Incorporated in the US, thus constituting a data transfer. With the privacy shield no longer, uh, the the safe harbor no longer in the picture. Facebook did those transfers on the basis of standard contractual clauses Um, so Mr. Schramms amended his complaint um, and wanted the Irish DPC to review also the, the standard contractual clauses. That's what happened in the past four and a half years. In the meantime, the privacy shield was negotiated, um, including a series of national security safeguards that were put in place that were extended by the US government, not only to the privacy shield, but also to standard contractual clauses and binding corporate rules. In the case that was before the court in the Schrems II decision, basically the question was, are standard contractual clauses a valid means to transfer personal data? Is it possible to use model clauses to do sufficient safeguards in line with GDPR? That was the main question. Um, but by implication, because we were talking about a data transfer to the United States, um, also the whole United States surveillance legislation came up again, as revealed by Edward Snowden in 2013, um, with the question, okay, so what would that mean for the standard contractual clauses, but also by implication with uh, to the privacy shield? And the court has said, well, the interference caused by the national security legislation in the U.S. is such that the privacy shield cannot be regarded as constituting an adequate level of protection uh, for data originating in the European economic area. Um, Standard contractual clauses as such could be valid. Uh, There is nothing that uh, prevents such model clauses from being adopted, nothing in the GDPR, nothing in our fundamental rights. But also when using standard contractual clauses, companies should ensure that there is an essentially equivalent level of protection Um, in any third country, not just the US, um, to that as available under the GDPR, which means that basically the court had raised the bar um, from just having adequate safeguards to having essentially equivalent safeguards to what is included in the GDPR, but then in your contract. Um, With national surveillance legislation or any any national legislation uh, that could interfere with the fundamental right to privacy and data protection, That could mean that on top of the standard contractual clauses, you need additional safeguards to be put in place, or if that is not possible, to stop the data processing altogether and stop the transfer.
0: There's a lot there. Thanks for that helpful overview. And I think we'll unpack both some of the the challenges around surveillance uh, and also delve into the the SCC's standard contractual clauses and and what we can anticipate and how companies should think about participating uh, in that if they haven't already But I I think you addressed this uh, implicitly in your last answer, but it sounds like this decision is overall very similar to what we saw in Schrems 1 in the Safe Harbor decision. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say. The court has once again said, we have fundamental rights to privacy and data protection here in Europe um, and also the right to to good protection um, of our private lives um so commission and member states don't even think about causing interferences um that uh that go beyond what would be allowed
0: and so the implications for other transfer mechanisms, whether it's st- standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules or, or other existing adequacy decisions that are currently out there between the EU and other countries, could you talk a bit about what the implications are? Uh, you addressed this briefly for standard contractual
1: clauses, but uh, maybe paint the, the landscape for us. Sure. I'll, I'll try not to be too legalistic, but what, what the court does is create a link with Article 44 of the GDPR. And Article 44 is the entry uh, entry provision into the chapter on all international data transfers. And basically what the provision says is that um, whatever you do with personal data, if it flows across borders, um, you cannot undermine the protections offered by the GDPR. Um, so think of it as, um, as a bubble. You need to create a bubble around the data and that bubble are the protections of the GDPR that needs to flow with the data wherever it is going around the world. Um, That is what you need to do. Um, So far, we always assumed that the three options for international transfers um, also had different implications of the safeguards that were required. You have adequacy as the main rule. Um, that, we already knew from trans one means an essentially equivalent level of protection, so the highest possible level of protection, not similar, but as much similar as possible to what we know in the EU. Underneath that, if you don't have adequacy, you could have the appropriate safeguards. Those could be standard contractual clauses or model clauses. They could also be um, ad hoc contracts approved by data protection authorities. They could be binding corporate rules. Um, in future, they can also be certifications or code of conduct when we see those adopted. For all of those, the court has now said, well, if you want to transfer data under any of those adic- appropriate safeguards, That's perfectly fine, you should be able to, but also then you need to ensure that in your specific situation, you need an essentially equivalent level of protection. The main difference with adequacy remains that uh, for adequacy, the theoretical framework um, of a third country needs to be assessed against that essentially equivalent level of protection. Whereas when you use the appropriate safeguards, like standard contractual clauses, it is on a case-by-case basis that you need to make that assessment. And that could, of course, turn out differently. The fact that a country has um, impactful national security legislation does not automatically mean it always applies to every single data transfer. Um, And that might also be the way out. And then you still have the derogations, um, also referenced by the court, not in a completely clear way, to be honest. Um, But basically, the court says, well, if... Appropriate safeguards and adequacy don't work. You still have a way out by using uh, the derogations, um, like using consent or using a, a contract or a transfer in the public interest. But there the data protection authorities and also the court have always held that you can only use these as an exception to the rule. Um, so that also means that you need to interpret those, de- those derogations restrictively and that they cannot be used, for example, for continuous or large-scale data transfers.
0: And I know the Irish Data Protection Authority has already stated that although the ECJ ruled that the SEC's transfer mechanism used to transfer data to countries worldwide is in principle valid, as you stated, it is clear that in practice, the application of the SEC's transfer mechanism to transfers of personal data, quote, to the United States is now questionable, end quote. And so is that safe to say that because there's now this case-by-case assessment, a lot of the burden is now on companies as they're uh, kind of evaluating uh, SECs and their partnerships uh, for transfers?
1: I almost fully agree with that statement, except for the word now, because that burden was already on the companies. It was just conveniently ignored, maybe is is too big a word, but... It comes down to that. Um, standard contractual clauses have been uh, for many years just signed as part of the contract without being thoroughly reviewed. Um, and I've spoken to a lot of people in, in recent weeks who suddenly read the standard contractual clause and said, hey, but what the court says is already here in the clauses. Um, yes, basically that that is the case. Um, but it is the burden, the burden is on the companies to make that assessment. What makes it challenging is that if the European Commission and the data protection authorities already have difficulties in assessing the legal framework in place in a third country, um, to expect that from companies might also be challenging. And um, large companies, multinationals with big legal departments and, and lots of budget for outside counsel may still be able to. that to some extent, but the standard contractual clauses are of course also used uh, quite often by SMEs, uh, small and medium-sized businesses, and and how will they be able to make such third country assessments? So um, I can only expect that the data protection authorities will come up with some more generic assessments. They will have to, in the end, in in any case, because there needs to be a consistent interpretation of the GDPR, also on which countries may be able to offer such an essentially equivalent level of protection in certain cases. So, apart from the adequacy decisions um, on which the DPAs will provide advice, um, I don't see how there cannot be some sort of whitelist or blacklist of, of countries where uh, data transfers would or would not be allowed in specific situations.
0: So for companies that are reading the headlines, participated in Privacy Shield, and really wondering right now, what do we do next assessing their current situation? Are there any practical kind of
1: next steps that you would recommend? First of all, start with that assessment. Um, realize that Privacy Shield is no longer valid as a means of transfer from the EU to the US. Um, there was no grace period this time. There was a grace period when Safe Harbor was invalidated there isn't one this time. So you immediately need to find an alternative means to transfer your data from the EU to the US. Um, but with the standard contractual clauses um, also becoming more difficult, that may take some time. Um, so in the interim, you might be able to suspend your uh, your cross-border data flows. If that is not possible, uh, try to complete that assessment uh, on whether you can still use the standard contractual clauses. Um, Uh, try to do that as quickly as you can, Um, which is hard and everybody is still struggling with it um, because nobody has given so far a list of safeguards that could be added to any contract um, to make it better. Um, And of course, there is no contract that can protect you um, against the might of any government surveillance. Um, that, That will be very difficult. So there you will need to look at Uh, maybe technical solutions. Encryption is often mentioned. Um, Full anonymization uh, is often mentioned, but that's not always possible in every single business process. Um, It could be some um, more operational organizational safeguards, uh, maybe creating separate databases of which part remains in Europe and is never accessed anywhere outside of the European economic area. Um, But... It's complex, there is no easy solution out of this. And of course, for those companies that are not subject to um, FISA 702 or Executive Order 1233 or Presidential Policy Directive 28 and, and have data that are not of interest to the security services uh, in the US, in this case specifically, um, you might be fine using the standard contractual clauses, but then you first need to have that guarantee that your data is not impacted um, and also have the guarantee from any subprocessors, because if your subprocessors or service providers to which the data also flow are using services that could be targeted um, by the intelligence services, you may still be in trouble. And it could be if you are using cloud storage solutions, for example.
0: Yeah, that's a helpful overview. And I'd be interested now in turning to some of the politics and and maybe what's ahead um, as we're looking to the future. Uh, I know you've worked in in government in the Data Protection Authority in, in the Netherlands and, and probably has some perspectives on on how this could play out in the coming weeks and months. Do you think there's going to be a serious effort to find a, a new agreement similar to Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield after this, or or do we now turn attention to different mechanisms?
1: No, I think there will be there will be serious discussion about an alternative. In any case, uh, the U.S. government, the European Commission, and the European Data Protection Board have all announced that they would be willing to um, to talk in order to find a, a legal solution to this challenge. Um, what may complicate things um, is that the U.S. are of course going into an election season, um, so there might be um, they might be less eager to uh, to compromise on things like like national security or on giving um, EU persons more rights, um, especially when also Americans in many situations don't have any um, any rights uh, or any standing in complaints against the intelligence and security services. Um, but that is that is what needs to be part of the negotiation. Um, If there will be an agreement, it will take months or maybe even years before we have one. The last time it was nine months. Um, In an election season, I think nine months would be really speedy. Um, So the uncertainty will will remain for the time being. Um, Any agreement that is to be found will need to address uh, from the national security perspectives at least two things. First of all, um, the oversight and redress. And that might be the relatively easy fix. Um, currently, under the privacy shield, there is the so-called ombudsperson, um, an undersecretary uh, within the, uh, the State Department who is able to um, access files and verify whether data has been processed in accordance with the agreement that was made. Uh, but the only answer that an EU person would get if they'd file a complaint is that if personal data were processed by the intelligence and security services, um, it was in line with the privacy shield and all the rules and regulations, or it wasn't and has now been remediated um, if the security services agree. There is no way for the ombudsperson to make a binding decision on what should happen with the data. They cannot communicate uh, to the individual if indeed data were processed because that's not what security services do, and there is no appeal possible. Um and all of those points have been criticized by the court, um, especially that there is no legal procedure, there is no independent court, there is no independent panel where you could go to um to to file a further complaint or to appeal a decision by the ombudsperson. Um so that is probably the, the, the easiest to solve. More complex is the question of the um, the foreseeability of the legislation. U.S. surveillance law is pretty complex. Um, also for Americans, from what I understand, from, from my colleagues and friends in, in the U.S., I think FISA, FISA 702 is already, what, 18 pages long or something like that. Um, so just to understand what the law is saying is hard. Um, and in combination with um, with orders and, and requests for targeted surveillance, or at least surveillance that is as much targeted as possible, that are being kept secret um, and are only adjudicated by a secret court, the FISA court, which only meets behind closed doors, where there is no possibility for anybody to um, to intervene on behalf of the individual. Um, that makes it very hard for a person from Europe to understand. Okay, if my data are going to the U.S., what are the risks involved um, uh, of that data being accessed? What, what are even the chances of my data being accessed, even if there is no suspicion against me, um, but maybe a suspicion against a friend or a friend of a friend, the so-called hops? Um, what what will happen with my data, and, and how do I how do I know that? Um, also, because even when an investigation is closed. Uh, there is no notification requirement on the U.S. side uh, to to tell people, hey, you have been subject in the past to an investigation. Um, You are now free to uh, to access your file and to understand what we've done. All of those points um, are required to justify an interference with a fundamental right, at least according to standing case law here in Europe. Uh, from both the court in Luxembourg, that also adjudicated James II, but also the court of human rights in Strasbourg under the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, both have, um, have pretty strict criteria. When I was still at the Working Party 29 and the Dutch DPA, um, we wrote a working document, WP 237, um, that explains which four European essential guarantees need to be in place um, to be able to justify an interference with a fundamental right. Um, And as mentioned, that is required because the data flowing outside of the European Union has that same protection. So also to justify an interference, you need the same criteria that you would need here in Europe um, to to be able to interfere with the right to privacy and data protection.
0: Yeah, I think you're right that it's going to be an uphill battle here, even from, from my seat here in DC. I would agree with all of that. I was Active in the the last push to get Judicial Address Act done as part of the Privacy Shield framework, and it was a fairly modest proposal in that it extended some rights under the U.S. Privacy Act uh, not only to U.S. citizens but also to uh, European citizens and others mm-hmm. that were kind of uh, of certain countries. Um, and you know that took months of negotiation, uh, and fortunately, in the in the end, we did get it passed. But even the Privacy Act. As you know, has these very broad exceptions for national security purposes. So even that isn't necessarily getting to the core of what the court is highlighting in this case, it seems. And and I think you're also right to to point out some of the the political environment right now in the U.S. and how that's further complicating issues. Um, we've seen members of Congress, especially from uh, the Republican Party, uh, point to the uh, decision to invalidate Privacy Shield. And say that um, you know this is really not only about privacy. This is also about um, you know protectionism, and they're pointing to GDPR and local. Data localization requirements and the digital services taxes as well as policies that are really targeting US companies. Um, so you know, I think that's going to be a, a real challenge. And you're okay. also seeing you know, administration and others say, well, this is a bit hypocritical. You know, you see surveillance laws in Europe as well. And so we should really look at this full picture. And, and because of this, this charged political environment that we're we're in right now, I think it's it's going to be a harder effort than we've seen in the past to, to get something done. Um, And then on top of that, as you mentioned, um, just the challenges with surveillance reform, Um, you know, there have been proposals to revise FISA in the last few months. We have bills that have passed out of the Senate and and House, um, but they don't necessarily provide any new protections for uh, EU citizens, um, even if they do provide a few new protections for U.S. citizens. Uh, And even the House and Senate bills are dramatically different at this point. Mm -hmm. And so we're we're, we're still a ways off from any sort of conclusion uh, to that ongoing saga. Um, But that's a a very helpful overview. So for companies that are interested in learning more about TrustArk, where would you suggest they turn?
1: Well, the easiest way is to turn to TrustArk.com. Um, because there you find everything about what we have to offer. But then also look under the resources section, because we've uh, got a special microsite um, with all our Privacy Shield ruling resources. So you'll find links, of course, to the judgments and to the EDPB frequently asked questions. But we also have a full overview of the DPA response. Um, Every single DPA in Europe that has said something so far, um, you will find the information there. Um, we have our own more extensive FAQ document. Um, I did a podcast uh, together with my colleague Kay Royal um, in our Serious Privacy podcast series uh, on the eve of the, or the, the night after um, the uh, the verdict came out. You'll find that, you'll find a webinar, uh, a ton of blogs. Um, so everything that you want to know about the, uh, the Privacy Shield uh, decision uh, and the SEC decision, you'll find it there. Um, and otherwise people can always reach out to me as well.
0: And I've been a longtime listener of your podcast, so I highly recommend our audience to to go take a listen there as well. Uh, it's been very informative uh, for thank me. Thank you. Well, our guest today has been Paul Breitbarth. Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure.